Good morning to you all and grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Last Sunday was Resurrection Sunday, and we looked at Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 15 about the importance of the resurrection. That if Jesus hadn't conquered death and risen from the grave, our faith would be useless and we would still be in our sin. The resurrection is crucial to the Christian faith. So I thought we might spend uh, one more week looking at the implications of Christ rising from the grave, what it meant to his original followers back then, and what it still means for us today. In Mark's Gospel account, we find the women. He lists them as Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. And they're going to the tomb early in the morning to properly prepare Jesus' body for burial. And as they walked along... They discussed among themselves about that large stone that had been placed in front of the tomb, and they wondered who they could get to, to roll that stone away for them. Matthew tells us that there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had come down from heaven and rolled back the stone so that the women and the disciples could see that the tomb was empty and Jesus had indeed risen. I know we read this as our scripture reading last week, but I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 28. And I invite you to please stand with me as you're able for the reading from God's Word. This morning I'll be reading once again the resurrection account from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Lord, this is a familiar passage to most of us. But we're going to be focusing today on just one part of this, the, the rolling of the stone away. So Lord, as we look at your word today, I pray that you would open it up to us, that your Holy Spirit would, would speak to us through it, Lord, and that as always, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together would be pleasing and acceptable to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was early that first Easter morning. What little grass grew in that arid climate was probably still damp with the morning dew. The cool air of early spring breezed through the branches of nearby trees. The sun crept slowly over the mountains before spilling its light over the rolling desert hills of Palestine. The bright morning star could possibly still be seen in the northern sky, a symbol of hope, a sign that 
something better loomed on the horizon. But for the small band of women making their way to the tomb of Jesus, hope was in short supply. Their spirits had been crushed by the same nails that pierced the hands and feet of Jesus. They were discouraged. They were disheartened. They were defeated. And what they wanted more than anything else was to see Jesus one last time, to honor him by anointing his body with with spices and perfumes to properly prepare his body for burial. But as they walked along that long, long, lonely path to the tomb, it suddenly dawned on them, Mark 16.3 tells us, that they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? Two of these women, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, had seen where the body had been placed, and they knew that a large stone had been rolled across the entrance to that tomb. So as they approached the gravesite, they they remembered that stone, and they realized that they weren't going to be able to move it on their own. That stone itself probably weighed several hundred pounds. It would have to be rolled uphill out of a rut in the ground in order to open the tomb. And even if all of the women had worked together, they probably wouldn't have been able to move it. So as far as they were concerned, it was an insurmountable obstacle. And maybe some of you know what that's like. We all have our own stones, don't we? You know yours. You know its size. You know its shape. You know its circumference. Your stone doesn't cover the tomb of a, a tomb in Jerusalem, but your path, your way may be blocked by a different kind of stone. Maybe they are boulders of of unemployment or abandonment or abuse or addiction. We face the insurmountable obstacles of debt and divorce and drunkenness and, and depression. Maybe you have bills you can't pay, grades you can't make, people you can't please, things like whiskey you can't resist or pornography that you can't refuse a career you can't escape, a past you can't shake, or a future that you just can't see. And the reality is, by ourselves, we aren't strong enough to roll any of those stones away. Come at it from any angle you choose, use whatever tools you want to use. You can't budget. You can't get over it. You can't get around it. Not an inch. You can't move it. Not on your own. But Jesus does for us What he did for Mary, for Salome, for Peter, for James and John, their lives were changed forever because he rolled the stone away. That stone represented the fears and the failures of Jesus' closest friends. And his resurrection personally and powerfully impacted the lives of those who knew him and loved him. It rolled away the stones that hindered their faith and their future. And I would put it to you today that other than the stone blocking the entrance to his tomb, Jesus moved no less than five other stones that resurrection morning. And he still rolls those same stones away for you and for me today. The first stone that he rolled away was the stone of discouragement. Let's go back to Mary and the other women on their way to the tomb. To say that these women were discouraged would be an understatement, right? They were devastated. They were heartbroken. They believed in Jesus. They had put their faith in him. All their hopes and all their dreams 
had rested in a man that they believed was God in human flesh. But then he died. The ground beneath the old rugged cross was stained red with the blood of God. They weren't the only ones feeling discouraged either. All of Jesus' followers were disappointed. They were disillusioned. I think the, the two disciples that were walking on the road to Emmaus spoke for everyone when they said, we had hoped that he was the one. We had hoped that he was the one. And anytime you start talking about hope in the past tense, you know you're in trouble. A soul without hope is like a body without food or water. Can you identify it all with these disciples? Have you ever had your hopes crushed right in front of you? We have all kinds of hopes and dreams, don't we? For some, the hope that we might meet that perfect man or woman and, and get married and have children and settle down or Maybe the hope that the marriage we have now might be rekindled. Some of us hope desperately to have a child, while others are hoping that their adult children might finally turn their lives around or come back to the Lord. We hope to get out of debt or escape our stress. We long to be healed from some disease or disability. Or we hope we just won't have to take this medication for the rest of our lives. When those dreams go unfulfilled or our hopes are shattered, it's discouraging. Sometimes it's devastating. But when Mary and the others saw their risen Savior, it changed everything. John's Gospel tells us the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. The message says the disciples, seeing the Master with their own eyes, were exuberant. You ever use that word, exuberant? I don't use that one very often, but it's a good word. The New Century Version says the followers were thrilled when they saw the Lord. The Living Bible says, and how wonderful was their joy as they saw their Lord. Seeing Jesus alive made all the difference. In that moment, they went from hopelessness and depression to, to joyful, thrilling, overflowing exuberance. I'm going to have to start using that word more often. I like that word. When we put our faith in Jesus, we will never experience a bankruptcy of hope. Psalm 22.5 puts it best. It says, In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Apart from Christ, life is full of disappointments and discouragement, but Jesus gives us hope. Some people have given the advice that you're never supposed to put all your eggs in one basket, right? And that's actually good advice if you're talking about investing your money. But when you're talking about your eternal salvation, it's a whole other story. The trick then is to put all your eggs in one basket, in the right basket, in the basket of faith in Jesus Christ. Because when we hang our hopes on the things of this world, we're only building castles in the sand. But when our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, in his death and resurrection, then we'll be standing on solid ground and we will never be disappointed. Jesus rolls away the stone of discouragement. He also rolls away the stone of dread. Do you remember what happened to all the disciples the night Jesus was arrested? 
They scattered, right? They all ran away. They abandoned Jesus in his time of need. And of the 12 disciples that were all handpicked by Jesus, only one, according to the scriptures at least, only one had the guts to actually follow Jesus to the cross, and that was John. And of course, after Jesus was crucified, they were even more terrified. They were certain that they were going to be next. In fact, the Bible tells us that that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And this was after the women had told them that they had seen Jesus alive. They were confused. They were fearful. So the disciples stayed close together, hiding from the authorities and huddled behind locked doors in fear, in dread. Jesus had given them the message through the women to meet him in Galilee. But they didn't go because they were paralyzed by their fear. Fear can do that to us, doesn't it? Fear closes the windows and locks the doors. Fear can be a prison of our own making and it keeps us from accomplishing what God wants us to do. So I ask you today, what are you afraid of? We're all probably afraid of something. Do you have a fear of rejection that maybe keeps you from sharing your faith? Maybe a fear of intimacy that prevents you from having any meaningful relationships. Maybe there's a fear of failure that that thwarts every attempt to, to try something new. As the disciples were cowering behind those locked doors, suddenly Jesus appeared to them. John tells us, Then Jesus came and stood right in the middle of them and said, Peace, peace be with you. Their fear was transformed into faith. Soon after this, these same fearful followers are now out in the city streets and the synagogues boldly proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. What made the difference? Maybe it was the promise that Jesus gave them when he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he couldn't have said that unless he had risen and was alive. Centuries earlier, God had given the same promise to Joshua. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So whatever challenges we meet, whatever obstacles we face, we don't have to be afraid, we don't have to dread, because we are not alone. We serve a risen Savior who is with us each and every day. So things like cancer or Alzheimer's or car crashes or a failing economy, a floundering 401k, teenage pregnancy, crime, natural disasters, anything that might come our way, God is by your side. In the words of the hymnist E.A. Hoffman that we sang earlier today, what have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms of Jesus. So the risen Jesus removes the stone of dread. He also rolls back that stone of doubt. Poor Thomas. Thomas always gets a bad rap, doesn't he? Thomas wasn't there that first time that Jesus appeared to his disciples. While the others hid behind locked doors, Thomas was off on his own. We don't know where he was. We don't know why. He wasn't there with them. But he sure has been chastised for it, hasn't he? What do we call him today? Doubting Thomas, right? 
The Bible says that one of the disciples, Thomas, was not with the others when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas replied, oh, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers in them and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas was a skeptic. He wouldn't believe it unless he saw the evidence for himself. Now, Thomas has taken quite a lot of criticism for his doubts, but he certainly isn't the only person down through the ages who has had doubts about the Christian faith. Maybe you have had some doubts of your own along your own personal spiritual journey. I know I did at one time. Occasionally, those doubts can creep back up again. But the resurrection of Jesus removes any doubt that we may have concerning who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. There's nothing wrong with being skeptical as long as we're willing to follow where the evidence leads. Thomas reminds me of a man named Lee Strobel. I've shared his story with you before. Lee was an investigative editor for the Chicago Tribune, and at that time he was a confirmed atheist, said God doesn't exist. But then his wife became a Christian. And as her faith grew, he saw so many changes taking place in her life, he was afraid that he might lose her. So he set out on a mission to investigate Jesus Christ. His goal at first was to prove to his wife that Jesus was not the Son of God, but, well, things didn't go exactly as planned. He used his resources at the Tribune to contact scholars and historians from around the globe investigating the reliability of what he called the Jesus biographies. That was the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then all the extra-biblical writings that talked about the life and the works of Jesus. And through all of his investigation, he came to the realization that everything about Jesus hinged on the resurrection. Everything hinged on the resurrection. If Jesus really died and came back to life three days later, then that validated everything. He even see he, everything that Jesus said, that it proved that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And Lee said the evidence for it was irresistible. It was irresistible. I'd love to share all that evidence with you today, but I don't have the time. If you'd like to read it for yourself, we have a couple copies of his book called The Case for Christ down in the church library. You can check it out, take it home, and read it for yourself. After nearly two years of investigation, Lee sat down at his desk with one of those yellow legal pads, and he drew a line down the middle. On one side, he wrote all the evidence against Jesus being the Son of God, and on the other side, all the evidence for it. And overwhelmed by his own discoveries, he gave his heart to Jesus right then and there, just as Thomas had done, right? Thomas, upon seeing the evidence, upon seeing Jesus with his own eyes, fell down to his knees and cried out, My Lord and my God. The resurrection of Jesus removes the stone of doubt. It also rolls away the stone of defeat. I don't know about you guys, but I love Peter in the Bible. One of my favorite people. Peter was such a simple yet passionate follower of Jesus. He was an all-or-nothing kind of guy. 
on the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter was all in. He said, Lord, I'm willing to lay down my life for you. Right? He even raised his sword in the garden and struck the ear of one of those servants of the high priest, trying to protect Jesus. But by sunrise the next morning, Peter had folded, hadn't he? Jesus had told him the night before, I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. But Peter once again told Jesus, after Jesus said that, he said, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Well, Jesus was right, and Peter was wrong. Peter failed Jesus when it counted the most. Do you know what it's like to fail? Do you know the heartache of, of a failed marriage or a failed career? Have you ever felt like a failure as a father or a mother or, or a friend? Peter's failure hung over his head like a dark cloud. He was ready to quit. Three years before, Jesus had called him away from his career as a fisherman so Peter could learn how to fish for men. Yet after Jesus came back from the dead, even after that, Peter still felt like a failure. So rather than head toward Galilee like he was supposed to do, well, actually, he went that way because we find him at the Sea of Galilee doing what? Out on a boat fishing again, right? Peter went back to what he knew best. He went back to fishing. He was ready to return to his old life. Not knowing what lie ahead, what, what he needed to do next, he fell back on what he was comfortable with. You guys remember the story? Peter and the others are out on the Sea of Galilee. They've been fishing all night, but hadn't caught anything. Sound familiar? Kind of what happened on the day that Jesus called them originally. Then Jesus shows up on the shore, and he yells at them from the shore to cast their nets on the other side of the boat, but they still didn't recognize that it was Jesus standing there. But when they followed his directions and brought in a catch of fish that was so big it was threatening to sink the boat, they all of a sudden realized, hey, that, that's Jesus on the shore there. What did Peter do? He immediately jumped into the water and headed to shore while the other disciples struggled to bring this big catch of fish in. When they all got to shore, they sat down with Jesus on the beach and shared a barbecue breakfast together. During that meal, Jesus asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And each time Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And without going into the whole conversation, Jesus ended that conversation with Peter with the exact same words that he spoke to Peter the first time he met him. He said, follow me. Follow me. Peter got a second chance. He had felt defeated. But Jesus rolled away that stone of defeat so that he could use Peter in the future. In a Nike commercial that aired years ago, a voice came over the television saying, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. These words were spoken by Michael Jordan, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Just because we fail doesn't mean we quit. 
Just because we've been defeated in the past doesn't mean we surrender. We serve and we worship a God of second chances. A God who rolls away the stone of defeat so that he can lead us to success if we will have faith in him. And finally, ultimately, he also rolls away the stone of death. The stone of death, ever since the Garden of Eden, death has been the archenemy of humanity. And death always wins. I looked online to look up some statistics. Sometimes words just don't come. The odds that you will eventually die in a car crash are about 1 in 125. The chance of you dying by heart disease, 1 in 6. The odds of you dying by drowning, 1 in about 1,000. But the odds of you dying, unless the Lord comes back, are 1 in 1. Death is inescapable. It comes to every living being, except for Enoch and Elijah, who we were told were taken up to be with the Lord while they were still living. But they're the exception. For thousands of years, death has stalked its prey with exacting precision. A 100% success rate. That is until Jesus. Because Jesus conquered death through his resurrection, and he offers to do the same for you and for me. The Apostle Paul put it this way in the passage that we looked at last week. He said, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he promised one thing that no one else could offer. And that was eternal life for the sinner if they would have faith in him. That's what Jesus came into this world to offer. In John 10.10, Jesus boldly declared, I have come that they might have life and have it how? Abundantly or to the full. Adam's sin allowed death to claim every human life. Christ's death challenged that claim and nullified it when he rose from the dead. Adam gave us all death. Jesus offers life to all who will turn to him in faith. In other words, real life can only be found in Jesus Christ. At conception, we receive as part of our human inheritance the gift of death. At conversion, we receive Christ's gift of eternal life. Our eternal destiny is not a matter of of better or worse, like something's hanging in a balance. It's nothing else but a matter of life and death. And the choice is yours between death and life. So the question is, which will you choose? Because life can only be found through faith in Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered why God rolled the stone away from Jesus' tomb? I mean, if you think about it, in his resurrected body, Jesus could materialize right through the locked doors as he did for the disciples on that first Sunday evening. Surely he could have left the tomb without moving the stone. But he didn't. He moved that stone away for Mary, for Peter, for for John, for you and for me. He moved the stone away to show us that he had risen. 
and I believe also just to show us his power that he could do it. And he still moves stones for us today. Whatever challenges you face, whatever boulders might block your path, whether it's discouragement or doubt or depression or, or divorce or death or, or drunkenness or fear or failure or even ultimately death itself, just know that Jesus still moves those stones today and he is ready to move yours today if you'll just surrender it to him. In fact, if there's a stone in your life today that's blocking your path to where the Lord wants you to be, all you have to do is to come before the Lord in prayer, surrender that stone to him, and he will remove it for you if it is his will for you. He'll roll it away so that you can see his path for you more clearly. He did it for those women on that first resurrection morning. He did it for the disciples that same night. Then for Thomas the following week. And he's been doing it for his followers all down through the ages. Is there a stone that you need the Lord to roll away for you? If so, please join me in prayer as we commit ourselves and our lives to the power and provision of our resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, we come before you today grateful, thankful that you rolled away the stone to your own tomb so that your first followers could see that you had risen. And we thank you that you are alive today. We all have stones that we face in our lives, whether they are stones of discouragement, stones of dread, stones of doubt, stones of defeat, or even the stone of death. We surrender those stones to you today and ask you in your resurrection power to roll them away from our lives so that we can see you and your way for us more clearly. We thank you even now for your answer and your constant provision for us. You are God, and we give you praise and thanksgiving that you are alive today and that because you are alive, we can face tomorrow. And all fear is gone, and we know that you hold our future in your hands. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.